This is Tasting Together. Toronto's News. Today's Talk. 640 Toronto. Bonjour tout le monde and welcome to Tasting <laughs> Together on 640 Toronto. I'm your host, Rookie Tom. You like what I did there, Andre? I did. I'm Andre Pru, and I'm still a little bit tired a week later. Um, I just spent the past week in France. Um, I was down in the great region of Bourgogne, like just north of Lyon, learning, eating, doing a bunch of stuff. Oh, so jealous. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know, Bourgogne is uh, Burgundy, so that you can make the make the connection there. And you have been drinking all the Chardonnay, Andre. So Andre <laughs> may have Andre may have an Edgar McSnob hat, but for those of you who don't know, he also has a Captain Chardonnay cape that he wears. I, I wear many hats and many monikers. I think a lot of people who follow me on social media at Andre Wine Review will see a wonderful photo of me taken <laughs> by a friend of the program, Angela Aiello. I was traveling with her super wine girl, took some great photos of me, but I donned a cape and a mask in the most prestigious Chardonnay vineyard in the world. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Well, okay. You've been eating and drinking your way all through there. Tiredness be darned. I am <laughs> glad you're back and here to share all the things you had eaten and drank so that I can live vicariously through you. You know what the really funny thing about the trip is, though, is I actually spent a lot of time thinking about you and the show because I was invited there by Van de Bourgogne, by, by the Wines of Burgundy people to taste there because that's my that's obviously my bailiwick and the big focus of what a lot of the content creation I do is. But they took really good care of us in terms of food as well. What a lot of people don't know. So listen, if you're in the car right now and you're imagining the best food in France... You're probably picturing, you know, a cafe by the Eiffel Tower. You're wrong. You are so wrong. The best food in <laughs> France is not in Paris. It is down in that uh, the Auvergne Alpes Comte region. I'm sure I, I mess up the name of the province, but the area around Lyon. It's where the great cooking schools are. It's where Paul Bocuse's restaurant was. If you don't know who that is, look him up. So it's also more relaxed. The reason I was thinking about you is I think we're seeing the winds of change starting to blow in the worldwide world of cuisine. Because I think for the longest time, if you go to Hong Kong or you go to India or you go to Mexico, you're seeing all these amazing chefs cooking to their their own culture. But the technique is really informed by the French, right? I'm not sure, honestly. I'm not sure if every single one's cooking style is informed by the French, especially like if you go to places, China, Japan, a lot of Asia. Yes. The cooking style comes from their own roots now, not, you know, and I think we've had a number of chefs on our segments in previous shows where they are Chinese or Japanese or, or Jamaican, and then they, but they're predominantly either born and raised in Canada or have immigrated to Canada or North America. And then when they went to culinary school, adopted French techniques of which they then integrated back into food from their own heritage. So I think it, it kind of depends a little bit where they're coming from or where you're finding these chefs and where they're living or grew up in. Okay, fair, fair enough. But that was the point that I was making is somewhere along the line, it's the French that get their fingers in the pies of most kitchens. And this is something you and I have talked about a lot in the show about the Eurocentricity of a lot of fine dining. But what I found in France that was completely surprising to me was seeing a lot of 
very specifically Japanese influence, working its way into French kitchens. Mm. Okay, do tell. And I think this is something that that, um, I thought you would find particularly fascinating because we've talked about fusion and the whole idea of like lazy fusion, right? Like, you know, maybe just taking, um, you know, a macaron, for example, and just making like a yuzu flavored macaron and just being like, okay, we've got Japanese influence on this French cookie, right? Um, but what that actually sounds like more consideration than I would give. But, <laughs> but yes, I, I, I that actually sounds pretty delicious, but I, I, I won't belabor the point. I won't belabor the point. No, I no, I, mean, just, I, mean, I had to think, I had to think of an example on the on the fly of like just something where it's just like, okay, you know, or you know, maybe maybe throwing soy sauce on a crepe and calling it like crepe au Japon, something Savory. like that. There we yeah, go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, there we go. But like, you know, I, I had a few dishes in particular that, that sort of really uh, stood out for me. Like I had a, um, um, a carpaccio, which is, and I realize more Italian um, in, in origin, but like it is popular on a lot of tapas uh, menus all over France. And uh, I saw it in a couple of places where they're giving it the tataki treatment. So, you know, like when you get a really nice piece of, of tataki tuna at a Japanese restaurant where it's just seared just enough on the outside to give it a bit of a crust, but still that like bright pink and cool in the middle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they're starting to do that with the beef dishes in uh in on some tapas menus for uh, appetizers and adding a little bit of soy influence on it uh, to boot to add a little bit more umami and it was just phenomenal and delicious. That's fascinating. Now, my my question to you then, Andre, is: Are you seeing? Did you see like a larger, I guess, like presence of Japanese? people in france like were there more japanese chefs were these japanese chefs in the kitchen or these french chefs adopting techniques or do you see like a large japanese tourist base which then may influence i I suppose like chefs wanting to cater to the people who are showing up and eating their food i think i saw a little bit of all of the above to be perfectly honest um one of the best meals that I had was at a restaurant called Maison Minori, which is in a small village called Givry, where um, I had a perfectly cooked, like poached steamed piece of cod, uh, you know, served on like the most delicious bed of caramelized leeks. But there was a lot of the Japanese umami in it. And the chef in the kitchen was um, a, a white French guy. Um, but I felt that this was a really beautiful fusion of what I love about really great French dishes where the fish isn't overcooked and the presentation's really nice. It's not greasy. It's not heavy, but then the flavors were like, it it was almost confusing to see this French plate taste so Japanese. Like it would be welcome at any great Japanese restaurant in the GTA, you know, or in Japan for that matter. Are you seeing predominantly just Japanese influences or are you seeing influences from other nations in Asia, like Filipino, Vietnamese, Chinese, Mongolian I'm just kind of throwing it all yeah no I was seeing Japanese it was really specifically Japanese and I I think it hit the nail on the head a little bit like Japan is a country that has a really strong wine culture and they do drink a lot of Burgoyne wines so I think there is a little bit of the catering to the tourists taking on but it was something I felt making note of as well because when I looked to the left and the right of me it was not Japanese people who were in the restaurant. It was French people. It was local people. It was tourists. It was a combination of all of the above. So I, I don't think it's there's. It, it, I don't think it's just one thing. I don't think it's pandering to for the sake of tourists. I do feel like because of the influence that this particular region has on cuisine 
worldwide that we're seeing a cultural shift take place and it's kind of cool and exciting to see. Mm -hmm. I think this is also one of those moments where it allows us as people to recognize that our flavors globally are closer than we think and that our cultures have an opportunity to intersect, right? In the end, salt is salt, sweet is sweet, spice is spice, and we can find a way to integrate spices from other cultures or other cooking techniques into existing cuisines. And you are still going to get something really beautiful because in the end, it's about those flavor profiles and how to balance them out and how to make them work. Well, come on. When when salt comes to salt, when it comes in soy sauce form, whether it's Japanese, you know, or Chinese soy sauce, it's always better than just using plain ass white salt. <laughs> but that's what I mean. It's salt, <laughs> but maybe maybe the French just realized that soy sauce was a little bit better than salt. <laughs> All right. As we're wrapping up before we get into the next segment, because we're going to get a little bit heavy, the Ontario Wine Awards took place. And uh, it wasn't all good news in terms of uh, what I saw and I think what you saw as well. Uh, but ending on a high note, I visited Chef Cedric Grolet's place. I've mentioned him on the show before. Check out his Instagram at Cedric Grolet. Picked up some pastries. They definitely did not disappoint. Well, good to end on something a little bit lighter and just allowing everyone to get their mouth watering. But after the break, we're going to put our brain caps on to just really discuss sometimes what's happening in the industry on both the wine side and food side. Coming up on Tasting Together, this is 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Welcome back. I am Andre Pru. Hello, and I'm Maroki Tong. And uh, I guess we'll dive right into it. Um, the Ontario Wine Awards recent, recently took Ugh, place. Do we want to go into this conversation? Yeah, we definitely do. I mean, we usually wait until segment four to dive into the world of beverage with Danny Longo. But um, I mean, it was such a big award show. There was something that really caught my eye that I thought was a little bit heavier and a little bit more newsworthy than what we usually tackle on this, um, you know, this show where we look for the good eats and drinks in the province. Yeah, but I think it's incredibly important because it's one of those moments where I think, you know, as consumers, we are always trying to make more conscientious choices in yeah. how we consume, whether it is buying sustainably or ethically. And that that applies to the world of wine and applies to the local world of wine, right? You wouldn't show up at a local restaurant that you knew was abusing their employees per se, or you wouldn't want to support a restaurant that has extremely unsanitary practices. So that applies to the world of wine as well. Yeah, I think so. Um, but before, I guess this is a little bit of burying the lead. This isn't just a segment to completely crap on the Ontario Wine Awards. The Ontario Wine Awards is uh, one of the more difficult wine awards competitions. I have been a judge uh, many years in the past in the competition. Uh, full disclosure, I was not a judge this year. Also, full disclosure, it did not bother me to not be a judge this year, which is not the reason why we're being critical. Um, there were something like over 500 wines entered this year. Uh, about 50 or so gold medals given out. The judging panel was 30 people, which is an impressive amount of judges to make sure that the wines are properly scrutinized. It is a very like difficult process to, to win an award at these competitions. Uh, you know, Notably, if you're looking for really great Ontario red wine, a lot of the 2020 uh, Cab Franc and Merlot and Meritage, if that's your jam... Um, the 2020s are out and there's a lot of gold medals across the panel. So there are some really great wines for you to check out. But when I was scrolling down the list that was sent to us, Maroki, from George Brown College through um, a press release, uh, one thing caught my eye that really 
felt like a bit of a sucker punch and frankly, I think is a bit of a black eye on the Ontario Wine Awards. And that is the white wine of the year, which was presented to the Norman Hardy uh, Winery and Vineyards 2017 Riesling. Mm -hmm. And for those of you who don't know, Norman Hardy is a winery out in Prince Edward County. And most notably in 2018, there was a Globe and Mail article that was released that essentially highlighted the amount of sexual misconduct that Norman Hardy had towards various members of women staff and, and women peers and colleagues and a very long history of it over the last few years leading up to the article that eventually was published. And I think just to follow up on it, because, um, you know, I, I like to take a look at someone like Anthony Bourdain as an example, because if anyone's had a chance to read his book, Kitchen Confidential, a lot of what is described that took place in the 1980s when Anthony Bourdain was working in upstate New York is very similar to what the atmosphere that was described at Norman Hardy around 2017, 2018, it was sort of parallel, but... I think one of the key differences is Anthony Bourdain became a voice and an advocate for change where for many people who have been outspoken against Norman Hardy, especially after the um, article came out, he has a habit of regularly blocking people on social media who are critical of the practices taking place at the winery. Um, I, I mean, in, in my view, there's just not a lot of remorse that's taken place from this winery and it's been a lot of... I'm sorry I got caught. I think it's a lot. I think where the defining factor is that there's been no effort to apologize or reconcile with the women in the industry who has called out his behavior. And I think it's always a bit of a slap in the face when an industry does not stand behind the women, especially when it's been publicized. I, I think mean, that's really the big stickler. And I mean, just to add a little asterisk that we know of. We don't know of any apologies, but I know many of the women that were interviewed in the article. And as far as I know, no one has said, hey, you know, I got that that phone call or I was at this event because Norman Hardy is still present at many wine events now where he had a chance to apologize to me. I haven't heard that either as well. But I mean, mm -hmm. as far as I know, nothing. Yeah. And I think one of the more interesting things about this entire situation is that the Ontario Wine Awards was hosted at George Brown College, yes. and they did provide a statement to us that they are committed to providing a safe, supportive, and respectful environment for the students and the entire college community, and that the Center for Hospitality and Culinary Arts ended their former relationship with Norman Hardy in 2018, which included revoking his honorary Bachelor of Administration and Hospitality. So it's quite, um, I don't know how to describe it, but interesting quotation marks is the only way I can describe it. It's the interesting situation that they have declared that they have ended their former relationship, including revoking his um, honorary bachelor, but yet his name has made its way onto the awards. Yeah, it, and I it's, mean, a, it's a very, yeah. Well, and I mean the justification. So the other part of the statement continues. This year's Ontario Wine Awards, uh, OWA, had 558 wine entries from 78 growers in Ontario. The judging panel consisted of over 30 judges who are not staff members at George Brown College. The awards were given out by a blind tasting adjudication panel, and the OWA aims to recognize wines for their quality, distinction, and brilliance. Um, yeah, to the point you just made, if you severed your ties with uh, this individual, why is he allowed to take part in the contest? And I think their argument is saying that everyone is allowed to enter 
in some way, and because it is a blind tasting, they cannot control who wins based on just the quality of wine alone. But this is where we get into really muddy waters regarding ethics and how an industry should be run. I agree. Um, I mean, one thing that has really bothered me is talking to people who have been happy to defend um, the wines made by this individual are the defense of, well, he didn't go to jail. He was never charged. And, and I think it really bothers me. It, it bothered me before, but even now, like having a, a little girl in my house, um, that we're not setting this industry to a higher standard. If you act like a scumbag at work and you act like a scumbag towards women and you don't go to jail, you're still a scumbag. End of story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you brought up in a good point in sort of our preamble leading up to this segment, Andre, where you said if someone is expelled from an institution, they typically are not allowed to come back and participate in an institution's events, regardless of whether they are simply the host or whether they are actually putting on the event itself. And I guess what I'm, I, I, the sense I got from George Brown is that they were trying to put themselves at arm's length, saying that they are the host, that, you know, none of their staff members participated in the judging. Um, but I think the thing is, when you are a host, you are a destination partner and you are yep. put to a higher standard of protocol. And it, it's fascinating that we're having this conversation because coming up after the break, we're actually going to be speaking about, we're going to be speaking to, you know, some destination partners of another region that actually was putting their money where their mouth is and making sure that they are standing up and speaking out and holding to their practices and ethics. You know, it's just, you and I have talked about this a lot offline, but I, I think it's just the sort of thing too, like if you're sitting in the car listening right now, it's a little frustrating how short people's memories are. And I know there's a lot of talk about cancel culture and whether cancel culture is real and blah, blah, blah. But one thing I really would like to give is just food for thought is there isn't such a thing as cancel culture so much as it's consequence culture. And you know what? I'm not sure that the consequences have been faced by, you know, this particular owner of a, a winery in Prince Edward County that seems to think that by the passage of time, his bad behavior will just be forgotten about and he'll get to carry on like nothing happened. Um, the industry doesn't mm-hmm. change without um, holding people to a higher standard, and that needs to be done here. And frankly, shame on you, George Brown College, for allowing this individual to take part in the Ontario Wine Awards. I think, you know, we always have to remember the victims of people. And even if someone, especially when someone prolific continues to participate, it's going to hurt a lot of those victims who feel like they've never been heard and never had their justice served. And it kind of sends the message and sets the example that people's voices can't be heard if you speak up and it will end up rendering a lot of people to remain silent if they are ever mistreated, abused in future circumstances. I don't think I could have put that better myself. Coming up after the break, we are going to lighten things up. I know that was a heavy segment, but uh, you also had a chance to do some recent travel, Maroki, and we're going to be heading down to the Finger Lakes. So stick around. We'll be right back on 640 Toronto. You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Welcome back. I'm Andre Prude, joined by Maroki Tong. And I'm really looking forward to this segment, Maroki, because we're diving into the fact that I'm not the only person that's been traveling internationally. That's totally fair, Andre. And while I'll say that I've been jealous, I am jealous that you went to Burgundy. I also would not have traded it for the world to have had the opportunity to go down to the Finger Lakes this last week. 
for to participate in an incredible forum filled with diverse voices in wine. You know, I'm looking forward to having our next guest on because I have a strong affection for the Finger Lakes. Um, I know it for its fantastic Riesling. You've been kind enough to help connect me with the Hillican Hobbs wines. And I think it's just something if you're in the broadcast range of this transmitter, there's a good chance that you don't know they make some pretty good wine down in the Finger Lakes. They absolutely do. I mean, if we talk about Ontario as making cool climate production being very similar to Burgundy to that respect, the Finger Lakes does that too. And I would even match it akin to, you know, regions in Germany like mm -hmm. Mosul. In fact, it's been the lakes have been sort of uh, compared to the Rhine River out there. So we're very pleased to be joined by Christina Oldroyd from Finger Lakes Wine Country. Thank you so much for coming on uh, to chat about Finger Lakes Wine Country. Oh my gosh, I, it is a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat. It's something that is very easy for me to talk about. <laughs> so I look forward to it. Thank you. I guess the first off is, I, I know this is a bit burying the lead because you and I have both been there and know this is great. But Christina, if you could tell our listeners, what makes the Finger Lakes so special? And why is it worth the five hour drive from Toronto to go check it out? It is such a unique place in not only New York State, not only the United States, but the world, because it really has such a really perfect blend of gorgeous outdoor scenery, the rolling hills, lots of farmland, our gorgeous lakes, of course, for which we're known, but it also has this incredible community and pockets of these small, amazing towns that are really built off of the the people who live there and work there and are so passionate. We have an incredible arts community and tons and tons of history. Um, it's a place, obviously, that wine lovers, beer lovers, food lovers can come and find amazing places. Um, lots of, we've been doing farm to table before it was cool. We've been in, you know, making sure that we are consuming foods and consuming drinks that are made within miles of our homes. And it really is a unique place to be. We're like this cool little quaint pocket of the world, but we're, so close to everyone because of the access. So Christina, um, when I went on my my last trip, which was before the pandemic, I know one challenge I had was just kind of getting myself organized and figuring out where to <laughs> where to go. And I, I, it may have just been that I just didn't know what to look for. But can you give me like really quick, like elevator pitch style? What's the best like resource to start planning my trip to the Finger Lakes? Well, of course, I'm going to plug my website, fingerlikeswinecountry.com. <laughs> I work for the organization Finger Lakes Wine Country. Uh, we're the regional brand and we are kind of the hub for um, all things that you need to know um, for visiting Finger Lakes Wine Country. So we are kind of the top of that funnel and then we give you all the information to begin planning your trip and then you can deep dive and say oh you know what? i really want to check out cuca lake i've heard a lot about cuca lake and you can visit websites that are specific to that you know place in the region um and i i there's also tons of opportunity to find information um when you're online you can you know search 
finger FLX wine country on Instagram, um, for instance, is a great resource to see what's happening in the region. I love that you shouted out the Instagram too, Christine, because I will fully say like, I, I know I was doing a partnership with Finger Lakes Wine Country, mostly to talk about wine, but I was using that Instagram to find <laughs> other things to do. Like I was like, oh, the hike in Watkins Glen, the Gorge Trail, look at that Instagram reel. Like I absolutely mm -hmm. need to go on that hike. And then that's how I discovered that there were all these amazing nature hikes and waterfalls all over yes. the Finger Lakes. And I was like, okay, that's non-wine stuff that I can do and then I was like in Penyan I was like oh I can actually bike like I can rent a bike and bike from uh Cuca Lake all the way over to Seneca yes. Lake and back I think it was like a 14 mile round trip allegedly two hours Sunday where I just kind of just looked at waterfalls and hung mm. out with nature all day I was like yeah like that's all the cool exactly. non-wine stuff right like there's so many yes. non-wine things that you can do on top right like there's nature there's exactly. history like history, history there's, there's art. so many cool museums and um there's so much to pad your visit i mean we all love wine it's you know the thing that the finger lakes region is now known for it's like my boss always calls it the sexy hook for you know what our brand is but there really is so much to see and do and so what we constantly hear is I had no idea and I have to come back. Well, let's talk a little bit about my experience when I was down at Finger Lakes Wine Country last week because I was a participant of an event called Field Blends and they have a commitment to raising diverse voices in the industry. And of course, FLX Wine Country was a destination partner and they were a scholarship sponsor. But, you know, like there are some amazing cities that are incredibly diverse. I remember being in Ithaca, being in one of them, but I think it was not a secret when we were participating in that event that, historically you know and and still to this day there's a little bit of signage that i think if you're a woman of color like myself can be a little bit problematic in the region so i'd love to know what finger lakes wine country is doing to build the region into a more inclusive space and how much do you think like an organization like yours is kind of responsible for championing these undertakings as you clearly were because you sat on yeah. as a sponsor Oh, absolutely. So, you know, it's no secret Finger Lakes Wine Country is a very rural place in upstate New York um, that is tends to run conservative. So there are signs, there's things that are, if you're kind of off the beaten path, I'll say, just being very transparent, you will potentially see things that we associate with certain thought processes. <laughs> um, I'm trying to be as politically uh politically responsible as possible but um i think we all understand what i'm talking about but finger lakes wine country as an organization is dedicated to making our community and this destination as rich as it possibly can be for a visitor or for somebody who's looking to relocate to the region and we firmly believe as an organization that we cannot do that if we are not culturally diverse, if we are not embracing all kinds of people. And if you don't feel comfortable here, and if you don't feel that you belong and that you're welcome, then are, we have failed as a region. And so it is very important for us as a leader in the tourism industry in this region and New York State to champion things like field blends. We firmly believe in diversifying our region, in supporting causes like that. 
you know, and it's, we just, we had field blends the week, uh, last week, which was incredible. And I think that everybody learned a lot about the region, but it was a really good way for the region to learn about ourselves too. You know, I'm hearing some feedback and I'm seeing where we can continue to have the conversation. And I think, Maroki, I don't know if it was you and I that were talking or someone else at Field Blends at our, our closing lunch that was so lovely. But if we don't have these conversations and they're tough, it's tough. I, I even myself doing this for so long still get tripped up because it's like, I, I don't want to offend anyone. I don't want to say the wrong thing. But you know what? It you have you have to be willing to put it all out there and say you know what we're not perfect and we have things in this region that isn't going to make everyone feel welcome but as an organization and as a destination we're trying to do the work to support people of color people of different backgrounds people of different identities people you know every single person walking on this earth we want them to find a place in Finger Lakes Wine Country, that they feel comfortable and welcome and look forward to returning. But it, again, it's a long road and it's just a slow and steady pace in the right direction. Absolutely. And I appreciate that really deeply, Christina. And of course, I will always continue to come back because I have seen the strides made and the conversations that we have and the actions that are being undertaken. Well, I appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much yes. for taking the time. And I look forward to coming down to the lakes again at some point in the future, maybe with Andre. Yeah. Oh, yes, Andre and Marogi, thank you so much. We look forward to having you back in Finger Lakes Wine Country. And I just hope that you get to taste some of our delicious Finger Lakes wine soon, too. Can't wait. Um, <laughs> change is never easy and uncomfortable conversations need to be had. It's great to hear that you're working right. to have those conversations. Thank you again. You got it. Thank you so much. And coming up after the break, I think the part of the show I've been looking forward to the most, we find out about the birth of Captain Chardonnay in the fields of Burgundy. So stick around. We'll be right back on 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. From Ontario to the Finger Lakes, it looks like we're traveling all over on Tasting Together. And now that we're back, I'm Maroki Tong. I'm going to now grill Andre on his trip to Burgundy alongside Danny Longo. Hey, Danny, are you ready to kind of like just, I don't know, sit in envy with me to listen to all of Andre's trip? I sure am. Yeah, I definitely uh, will be living vicariously through you here, Andre. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, I recently had a chance to visit Burgundy. If you're sitting in the car right now and maybe do not know a lot about wine or are just at the beginning of your journey, Burgundy is a region in the east, mid-east of France, right close to the Alps. It's about two hours from Switzerland. And it is home to some of the most sought after prestigious wines on the planet. And yes, you guys can bask in the glory. I got a chance to taste many of them. Yes, very jealous. <laughs> okay, well, Andre, why don't you give us the the biggest hits? I know you visited a lot of wineries. You tasted an absurd amount of wine if your Instagram stories were any indication. So I, I want to know your like, I don't know, greatest hits. Off you go. Um, you know what? There is a winery called Patrick Javillier that make fantastic uh, Chardonnay at a reasonable price. Let me put in brackets here for the region. Uh, I ended up bringing home a really nice bottle of Merceau. Merceau is a style of quite oaked um, but opulent juicy fruit. Um, 
But I mean, like I tasted over 200 wines and there were definitely a lot of highlights in many places. But one big highlight of the trip was I had a chance to catch up with Pascal Marchand. And if you go to the back of the LCBO, along the wooden section, if this is not a section of the store you usually visit, this is worth the trip, you'll find it under the French wine section. Marchantaz is the name of the label. And my mind was really kind of blown by this guy. He is talking about the approach to winemaking. Because when we're talking about these wines, and like the bottle of Chardonnay I brought back with me, these are wines for the most part that will sit in a cellar. But what Pascal is trying to do is to make the wines more approachable so that Maroki, if you or Danny or Larry or Karen sitting in your car goes and buys a, a really nice bottle of Burgundy, you can take it home and open it without having to wait in a cellar. And this is what he said when I asked him about this approach to winemaking. It's part of, uh, it's part of uh, we, we, we trust our vineyards a lot. Huh? And it's part of uh, the way the wines are consumed nowadays. Um, and also the, 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 the way the market is organized, like um, nowadays, I mean, in the past, no, you, you could bottle a wine and tell people, okay, that wine is not easy to taste now, but just wait 10 years and it will be fantastic. Nowadays, the old world is, I mean, the old world, the journalists and the sommeliers are coming uh, to taste your wines and they're not even bottled and uh, the wines are, are have to show well right away. So, uh, it, and uh, so we make them, in, I mean, uh, we, we, the way we vinify them, uh, we, we, uh, we trust our grapes more uh, because we work, really, uh, we, we work hard in the vineyards. And when the grapes are coming in the winery, we feel like we need to do less on them to get the final result. And therefore, the wines, when we bottle them, are, doesn't, they don't have these harsh tannins. Um, even though they, they need to age, they can, I mean, they can still have an ability to age. Uh, they taste, uh, they're much easier to taste uh, right away. It's so fascinating hearing that because it, it does remind me of the conversations I had at um, the Wines of Portugal event a couple of weeks ago because I guess I there has been a slow evolution of how consumers and experts alike want to appreciate wine and and that is wine you know even ageable wine should be as delicious even when it's young as it is age worthy i think a long time ago i I even think back to you know yeah several several years ago back then it's like you could open a wine taste and be like "Mm, not so good but you know what it's gonna be great in five years i can Mm -hmm. taste the potential but these days we're very much like yeah, it could be delicious in five to 10 years, but I also really want to just be able to enjoy it now. It's not about buying wine for the future per se. It yeah, was- that's exactly what I was thinking too. And it's so it's so interesting because we've kind of become that way in society now where we're demanding to be pleased immediately and waiting for a bottle for 10 years seems just absurd. Well, you know, I don't mind. I actually have quite a few wines in my collection, you know, like I said, pulling out the Edgar McSnob hat again, um, that I'm planning on aging for 10 years. But the thing is, when you're tasting some of these super prestigious wines and they tell you age statements like 30, 40, 50 years old is I'm still looking for wines that I can enjoy in my lifetime. The other side of the coin, though, I did a fantastic tasting at Demen Pavolo, and these wines come through the LCBO through vintages once in a while. And I I grilled the winemaker a little bit. I'm like, when are these wines going to be ready to drink? When are they going to be ready to drink? And um, he went down into his cellar. He he said his wines were going to be enjoyable young, but he wouldn't give me like a full age statement. And he opened up a 1991 Savigny Savigny Le Bon, which is a village in Burgundy. 
and it was like the wine of the trip. Uh, Maroke, I know I tagged you on the post on Instagram because we do our monthly seller it where we talk about some wines that we purchase and how long we're going to age it. And like this wine was, it tasted like literally everything you could expect really great Pinot Noir to taste like. A little bit of vanilla, a little bit of fresh cherry, dried cherry, rose petal, violet, you know, mossy forest floor. Like it was a, it was a full on symphony of flavor. So you know, while I tasted these great wines from Pascal Marchand that could definitely be enjoyed now, I think if I were to hold on to a bottle for 20 or 30 years, it would also be equally interesting. Yeah, it's a lesson in patience. You'll be rewarded, I guess, for it, right? Yeah, something I'm working on. <laughs> <laughs> well, my question to you, Andre, because I know one of the things I know about French wines is their classification systems in terms yeah. of quality. Do you think that a wine that is listed as like village per se, which is, you know, just only one tier up from the very, very entry level. Would you find that those would be less seller worthy that they're designing when people are releasing wines in the village level that they're saying, well, this is a drink now, like don't even think about it. Whereas something that's in the Grand Cru level um, would be something that is more seller worthy. You know, I think it's a safe bet if you buy a bottle of Burgundy that says Grand Cru that it will age in a cellar regardless of producer. And this is where the challenge comes in with the region. And this was the nice thing about visiting there and learning about new producers is it really does depend on the producer. I tasted some fantastic wines from like Louis Jadot and Domaine Drouin. And these are staples at the LCBO. They make really great entry-level wines, but not anything that I think would really benefit from three, four, five years in your cellar. But also, if you were to talk to the people from Drouin and Jadot, they would tell you, no, we're making wines to convince people to get into the Premier Crew and the Grand Cru wines. And I mean, if we're speaking a little bit of gibberish here, I was at a Domaine de Roche at the beginning of my trip in the south part of Burgundy, and I had our uh, host, Romain, just explain to me the classification of what village versus Premier Cru versus Grand Cru me means. I'll let, let explain it in his words, and then we'll see if either of you have any questions to follow up. In Burgundy, we have several layers of, I mean, several levels of appellations. Like you start with regional level, which is Bourgogne, then you have village, like Puyfusé, Macon Village, Saint-Véran, or even Marceau. And then you have Premier Cru. So it's the finest plots inside the villages. So you have Marceau Premier Cru, now Puyfusé Premier Cru. And then you even have Grand Cru, which is like the 0.5% in Burgundy only of Grand Cru. So that's a very, uh, the top single vineyards, the best locations, the best exposures, the best soil. Uh, yeah. So I guess the key thing to keep in mind when you're picking up a bottle of Burgundy is when you see Premier Cru and Grand Cru, it's not just about quality, but also about geography. And historically, if it says Premier Cru or Grand Cru, these have been sites of some of the best wines in the region. I remember looking at a map of Chablis uh, uh, like sometime last year and just seeing when they highlighted whether something is village or something is Grand Cru and just seeing the sites get smaller and smaller yeah. and less and less, you know, like areas highlighted on the map. So it really just goes to show the, I guess, like specificity of making that wine. And obviously, you know, in wine, we talk about the word terroir. <laughs> we, we bounce that word around a lot. And I think one of the things that make wine Premier Cru or Grand Cru is that expression of the land of where the wine comes from. That's the magic of Burgundy. Anything, any last words, Danny, before we sign off? Yeah, no, I was just going to say, talking about this hierarchy here, I, 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 what exactly, like, I'm looking at a map here, I'm, the percentage of Grand Cru is 
minuscule. Did he say 0.5%? 0.5. Because even if it is quite a bit of geography, the amount of fruit that comes from these sites is minuscule because they farm to incredibly high quality. It's a lot of really old vines. Uh, the wines I tasted, I had a chance to taste about a dozen Grand Cru wines and they were all delicious. All killer, no filler. <laughs> all right. Well, I guess we're going to have to find ourselves at the LCBO grabbing some Grand Cru and just like <laughs> ignoring the price sticker. Well, I mean, that's it. Listen to, listen, listen to Pascal. You can buy it and enjoy it now. And if you've got the scratch, maybe buy two bottles and save one for a special occasion. Uh, okay. Or maybe we just need uh, Andre to bring a few more bottles back <laughs> for Danny and I on his future visits to Burgundy. Well, thanks for tuning in to Tasting Together this Saturday. As always, please set your alarms and you can join us every Saturday at 5 p.m. to find out all the best eats and drinks in Toronto and now these days internationally as well. Tune in next week to see where we taste next on 640 Toronto. 911.